Designated Driver with Celestian. On the podcast today is guitarist and film score composer Hal Lindes, who was a full-time member of Dire Straits at the height of their success in the 80s and is now a prolific film and TV composer, scoring a number of BBC series as well as 2010's critically acclaimed The Boys Are Back. So welcome on, Hal. How are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. How about yourself, Alice? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks so much for joining. And you were just saying off air, you're in a quite a lovely part of the world, aren't you, at the moment? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm in the beach community of Los Angeles in Venice Beach, uh, which has been really fascinating because when I first moved to L.A. a while ago, it, it was sort of uh, the unpolished jewel uh, all around Venice Beach had been sort of overdeveloped and became really bougie and posh. And Venice still had a lot of the original artists and, and, you know, a lot of homeless people and stuff. So it was kind of undiscovered as it were, but, you know, they certainly discovered it now. And it's, uh, it's pretty vibrant though, but there's a ton of uh, young startup companies and technology happening. And it's kind of a bit like living on a college campus, because there's there's a lot of energy, a lot of youth, and yeah, it's a very exciting place to be. And you're right by the water, so mm, sounds beautiful. And how long have you been there? Man, about twenty years now. Well, I bounce I, I bounce back and forth between. I have a place in London. I have a little studio there, and I kind of go back and forth. But but uh, my my kids are out here, um, so I you know this is pretty much home base. Yeah, of course. So are you coming back to London every now and then for work purposes or do you still have a family over here? Yeah, it's most mostly work purposes. I, you know, I, um, I have various collaborators and people I work with uh, and and I love the place. You know, it always feels so ground. I mean, look, you can't beat the weather in, in California and you can't beat being right down the street from the beach. But there's something about London uh, that just I don't know. It just grounds you. As soon as you're there, it, it, even, even though I'm not, I'm not English, but I've lived a huge chunk of my life there and it always feels like coming home, coming home. Mm, absolutely. So, I don't know why I thought you had family here though. I'm not sure why I thought that. That was in the back well, of my, my head. Kids, my three out of three out of my four children were born in London. Oh, I see. So, okay. That must yeah. be it. Yeah. Okay. So it's, um, sounds like not, it might be a push, not, maybe not a second home, but it sounds like you're pinging back and forth fairly frequently, but yeah. it sounds amazing where you are. Um, what a place to live. And then what um, what are you up to at the moment? What's the typical day in the life of Hal Lindes looking like at the moment? Oh, you make it sound so glamorous. Well, come on, uh, sell it to me. You're by the beach. Uh, I'm loving it. It's a lot more glamorous than what's going on over here, I can assure you, Hal. Pressure, pressure. Um, you know, COVID, everything was pretty sweet. And then COVID happened. And it was quite interesting because it was a shakeup and it knocked, I guess, most people. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to have not, you know, been affected by it with your health, uh, it kind of shook everything up and it shook everybody out of their routine a bit. And generally, you know, I have, I love scoring and I, I mostly these days I do television and I have certain people I work with all the time. Kay Meller, for instance, I do a lot with. We have like three, two or three different series going and you know the first thing that happened was production stopped so what i thought my calendar was going to look like turned out not to look like that at all 
So then you're like, oh, well, okay, what are you going to do? So I found myself uh, getting back into songwriting, which I haven't done for a while. So I ended up with a pile of songs. And I'm, so I got to a point where I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do with this stuff? So I've started various projects. There's, there's um, a band project I'm doing with a singer out here called Steve Cook, who's from New Zealand. And we're hoping to have that sort of complete by the end of summer, hopefully, if we can. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I, I do album projects with another guitarist out here called Brian Tarquin. And he's kind of more of a, he'll kill me for saying this, but he's more of a shredder guitarist or kind of also, uh, you know, jazzy and fusion-y. Very, very different. We're polar opposites because super he's super precise and he can, he can fire off uh, a, a rapid succession of notes. Whereas, you know, over that same space, I might hit like two or three long sustained notes. <laughs> Um, but it works really great together. So we've done a blues album together that should be coming out shortly. And also we did a uh, track. He's he's released an album with various guest guitarists. And we've done a track together with Robin Ford uh, called uh, Quiet Desperation. And that's all going towards uh, the Wounded Warrior Charity Fund. And that's supposed to be coming out, I think, in September. And what else have I got? Um, I did a acoustic, one of my passions, apart from film scoring, is is I love acoustic guitar. And uh, so I do acoustic instrumental albums on the guitar. And and then I try to incorporate whatever acoustic instruments around, like mandolin or even, yeah, I've taken, I've gotten really fond of the banjo, but, you know, used really subtly because people immediately... Like, oh, that's country, yeah, I can't have that. But, you know, there's a lot of really interesting tones in a band that don't necessarily point it immediately into rural America mm-hmm. country music. Um, yeah, so you do that uh, and then use, like, charangos or, uh, uh, oh, gosh, I've gone blank now. What are these little things? Charangos <laughs> and oh, ukuleles, all, all different ukuleles, nice. uh, like eight-strung and then tenor and, and basically, so, you know, I do do instrumental albums of those. So I did one of those earlier in the year for Universal. Okay, so um, you've been keeping very busy then, by the sounds of it. And um, I'd love to go back a bit before you ever thought of being in a band when you were a kid. Um, were you super into music and maybe even film scores now that I know about your whole composing side? Were you the kid that was always drumming on the table? Did you always want a guitar? What was it like growing up for you? You know, it's really funny about the guitar thing. I, I had, I, I did not come from a musical family, although my father did play piano. We always had a piano in the house. Mm. I was very private about it. I don't know what all that was about, but, you know, he off quietly and playing. He was quite a good player too, but he never made a show about it. Um, and he was never really that open to showing me things. Uh, but I always had to think about a guitar and I don't know why, but, you know, it'd be like a little kid walking down the high street with his mom. And as soon as I saw a guitar in the window, I'd just stop. It would just totally captivate me. Mm. It had, it had a power over me. And, you know, at some point I started campaigning heavily to get a guitar and my father didn't see the guitar (laughs) as a proper instrument. And he finally said, look, if you want to, you know, if you want to get into music, you have to, you have to 
practice on a, on a, you have to learn a proper instrument, which was piano. Of course. So I found myself taking lessons and playing piano. And, and uh, it was not the movie playing my head that I had about mm. music. But um, it was very good because it gave me the, the grounding and the foundation, some music therapy and stuff, everything I needed. Although at the time I was not super stoked about having to do it. And then at some point I was, I, you know, I just kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. And, it was, and the path of least resistance was to say, okay, we'll get you a guitar. <laughs> so they, they got me like a, a really uh, low, low end starter acoustic guitar. And I just, that was it. My life changed from that point. I very rarely emerged from my room. I was on that thing all the time. And then, then they saw that I was very serious about it. And then, you know, they upgraded me to a better guitar and, and I don't know. Is you know, I think about it now, and it, and it's incredible because you know most of us don't do the same stuff that we did when we were ten, and we certainly don't have the same things lying around that we had for all those years. Mm-hmm. But you know, I have some of my early guitars that I've had nearly my entire life, and I'm still pretty much doing the same stuff I did when I was a kid. So it's 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 quite an interesting study on that. Mm, that's quite and nice also, in a way. I wonder if um, what your younger self would think if you could go back and say, hey, guess what? Stick at it. The guitar thing will pay off. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, certainly back then you didn't think you were doing a lifetime commitment. And, you know, as a kid, as you know, you get into things and you get out of things. You know, one week you're into mm-hmm. soccer, next week you're into something else, you know. So it's fascinating. And the other thing is uh, you wonder because, you know, when you sit in a room by yourself, for an hour or two or whatever it is, it's almost like meditation because you, you just go off into another world there and you're shutting off your brain stops working. You're not sitting there thinking, Oh, I got to pay the bills and I got to take the trash out and I got to feed the cat. You're off in this beautiful world of harmony and, and tonality. And I'm sure that shapes you into the kind of person you grow up to be. And then sometimes I wonder, like, what kind of person I would have been had I never discovered music? You know, would I be like some aggressive yob with a temper? I don't know. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. What do you think you'd be doing in, in terms of a job then? Maybe uh, you could be a yob, but you could be holding down a nine to five. What do you think you'd be doing? Wow, that's a million dollar question. I think about that sometimes. Uh, fortunately, I've never had to think about I, I've never had to really. Yeah, unless, but, you know, I'm fascinated by people and I'm fascinated by stories and I find everybody has some story in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of think I could be some kind of therapist or something because I would love to hear people's stories and see what I could bring to them mm. if they're, if they're going through like, like, you know, uncertainty in their something anyway i mean i'm where i'm rambling about nothing fortunately i've never had to really pursue it or think about it any further it's interesting though when anyone thinks of that some kind of sliding doors situation you know if i hadn't gone to this school you would have had a completely different set of friends or if i'd lived one town over your life just could be completely different but it's just infinite uh possibilities you could almost torture yourself with about the friends you could have had (laughs) for instance um the jobs you could have had it's interesting it's so random too, as a kid, because, you know, it's one, one change, like, you know, different class at school, or, you know, it's not like a big thing that can make a huge shift in how your life turns out. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, right. was a great, 
there was a movie, a British movie um, called Sliding Doors mm-hmm. ages ago. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that always fascinated me, that co- that kind of scenario where like you just happen to be late and you miss a train or you go through one door and then, and it just entirely changes your, your life. So. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, so when you went back, when you got your hands on the guitar and your parents could see you're taking it seriously, were you self-taught then? Did you have loads of chord books open in your room? How did you learn? Yeah, I was mostly self-taught. I had a ton of chord books and, you know, I had an older sister Well, I have still have fortunately four years older so she was into the music and you know, she had like one of those little dance set type of players. And she was very much into the pop music of the day, which got me into it. And I'm a huge pop music fan. I love the single. I love that kind of really, cons- well, it's not like that anymore, but back in the day, it was a concise piece of art that was like two and a half minutes or whatever long. And I, you know, I would play along to that. I would always, you know, try to figure out the chords and learn by the record. In those days, it was, you know, so different to now. If you want to learn how to shred like Joe Saturani, just go on YouTube. There's some guy on there going, hey, this is Bill, and I'm going to show you how we do this lick kind of thing. But back in the day, you had to listen to the record, and you could slow it. Like, if it was a 45, you could slow it down to 33, and then try to figure out what the heck the guitarist was doing there. So it was a much more... Uh, in-depth study and I, I you know I, I think it, it because you have to find it yourself I think you learned a lot better than just watching some guy explain to you how mm-hmm. something is done yeah so much harder back then like you say you can just get on a YouTube video now anyone could type in something there's a how-to um, yeah imagine slowing it down and trying to go through it excruciatingly bit by bit but probably more rewarding though I yeah I think it was hard work though and it was frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And you know what I found out about myself too is, is sometimes you just wouldn't get it. You would spend ages on it. You wouldn't get it. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next day and try again. And then you go, oh, I got it. So sometimes you have to give it time and space. Absolutely. And um, obviously, I'm going to have to ask you about Dire Straits, um, yeah. which I've seen you were obviously in from, it was 1980 to 85. Um, yes. So how did you come to join the band? Did you already know the guys? Well, we, I, I was in a, in a band prior to that, that was managed by um, a lovely person called Lou McGrady. Mm-hmm. And she left our management team and she went to work for Ed Bicknell, who was managing dire straits so my the band i was in kind of dissolved and when david left the band i got a call from lou saying you might find this interesting but you know david's left the band and at that time you know i i mean i yeah oh she said so so would you be interested in coming down and having a play and i was like i was like yeah sure you know because Mark was on fire at that point. Mm. Everybody was talking. So as a guitarist, I wanted to check him out and see what, what all the fuss was about firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I love, to this day, I love Pick Withers drumming. I, I, you know, I, I have a thing about drummers. I, I'm I drummer crush. And okay. Pick has been a lifetime drummer crush because his touch is, he has so much finesse and delicacy to his touch, yet he can really pound the kid if he has to or wants to. 
And he also approached rock music with much more of a kind of orchestral feel to things where, you know, he had mallets and brushes and he would, you know, play these kind of, he would play almost timpani parts on his toms and stuff. So I was really intrigued about this and, you know, very happy to be invited now. So I didn't really know what to expect. And, and I was very casual about it. I was and there at that time they were in, in uh, by the Cuddy Sark there. I think it's like, is that Rotherhide or somewhere around there? Mm. And I was in St. John's Wood. So, you know, it was quite a schlep. And, uh, it was a, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't busting a gut to get there. So I, you know, I came in a bit late. Fashionably <laughs> late. Yeah. And uh, it was super chill. And there was nobody there but the band. They, were, they weren't auditioning a ton of people. I think they might have seen one person before me. And um, it was down on the wood wharf. So it was right there on the river. And it was a funky old place, but it had a huge picture window overlooking the Thames. And it had a terrific atmosphere in there. Mm. And what happened was, one by one, each of the members would walk over and introduce himself. And we'd have a chat and stuff. So it was almost more like a, cat, a social thing than a you know, get your guitar and play. Yeah. And, and that kind of went on for a couple of hours. You know, we were just sitting, chilling and hanging. And, you know, I immediately was struck by how much I liked the guys. They're all really super interesting. And uh, we got along really well. So at some point, Mark said, uh, well, you fancy having a play? <laughs> I was like, sure. Well, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, while you're here, why don't you? And then he, he um, oh boy, this is really going to date me. But then he handed me over a Walkman, which at that time had just come out. Yeah. I don't know if you know what a Walkman is or well, was. A cassette Walkman. Yeah. Yeah, I used to have but, one when I was a kid. Yeah, I used to use it on the school okay. bus. Yeah. Yeah. So big deal back then, because prior to that, there was no way you could you could have decent quality music that you could have you know you could walk around with and have high fidelity and stuff and i'd never even seen one i mean i'd read about it but i've never seen it. so it was quite a big deal to be handed a walkman and he goes uh he goes yeah take a look at listen to this and uh you know don't worry about the changes just get the spirit of it went, okay so of course the song was tunnel of love and you you know what those changes are i mean they're not they're not for the squeamish that so i'm listening to this thing and i go holy crap you know <laughs> And, and that was uh, that was the first thing we played. We played Tunnel of Love, and it was just amazing. It 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 was so explosive, and the chemistry was there. And we locked in together, and I think we all knew that this was this was it for us at this point. And then, so we played that. We played a couple of other songs, and then this was in in summer, so it was around August. So you still had the very long nights mm. um, and you could see the sun setting over the Thames through this big picture window and the sun was starting to go down it was that big red ball of flame and we did Sultan's the Swing and that was probably one of the most magical moments mm. that I have with the band it was just that was it they had me at, at, at Sultan's. I mean, it was like, this is amazing. Mm, and then afterwards, Mark said, do you want to you go out and uh, grab a glass of wine? So we went to wine bar. And we were just chitty-chatting. And at the end, he goes, so do you want to come back tomorrow? <laughs> so I was like, okay. 
And at the same time that I was auditioning, there was a keyboard player auditioning, Alan Clark, because Mark was replacing his brother with the keyboard player and the guitarist. And so every night was kind of the same scenario. You know, Mark would go, I do want to come back tomorrow. And then at some point, we started the tour and we started in Canada. And we were into the tour. Oh, we started in Canada, then we went down to, to, America, to the, the States, to the U.S. And we're traveling around. At one point, I was talking to Alan around breakfast. Something I said, you know, Alan, I was officially asked to, you know, join the band. And he goes, yeah, it's funny you said it because neither was I. So all Alan and I ever got was, do you want to come back tomorrow? Do you want to come back? So we went over to Ed Bicknow and said, so Ed, look, I mean, did we get the gig or what? Are we in the band? And Ed, of course, laughed. He said, yeah, of course you're, of course you're in the band. Kind of thing. But that's kind of just to illustrate how casual the whole thing was. She turned up, it worked, and off you went. Well, it worked for five years, so uh, they must have kept asking you back to be coming in tomorrow for quite a lot of days yeah. in a row, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. What was it like to tour with the band? What are your memories of that? Amazing. It was amazing. The whole thing was amazing. Um, it was a well-oiled machine, uh, taken very seriously, a lot of rehearsing going on. We used to do t- The show was two and a half hours, and we used to do at least two hours sound check every day. Wow. Sarah. And uh, everything was a lot of focus on the lights, presentation, the music. Mark was constantly rejigging and rewriting and writing, creating segues between the songs. Because he would, it wasn't just about coming up and playing 10 songs. It was the bits between the songs were as important as the songs themselves. Mm. There were journey pieces and he would do a segue between one song and another and then create a talking point which you know he pretty much said the same night after night that would sort of give the gist of the next song that was coming up and the whole show almost became like one piece of music as opposed to a bunch of pieces of music let's see Um, and yeah and, and you know, the other, thing, the, the other thing, too, you know, it's one of those bands. I mean, look, I love music. I love bands. I'm a rock guy. I'm a three-minute song guy. And this was a whole other level. Mm. I, I don't want to say it was like a classical concert or something, but it was heading in that direction where it was, it was, a, it was a statement. And the impact a show would have on people, too. It, was, it, it all became, I've, I've never been much of a day, Grateful Dead kind. I've never been to a Grateful Dead show, but I imagine it was a bit like this because all of a sudden it all becomes one. All the people and the band all become one thing. It's not us and them and us playing some songs. It just became this experience that was quite stunning to witness and to be part of night after night. Mm, sounds it. And what was it like? you know, interacting musically with Mark because um, you've got different styles. So how did they complement each other? You said you were a rock guy, and I think at the time he was more folk influenced, wasn't he? Yeah, very. Yeah, it, surprisingly, it worked really, really well. And at that time, I think Mark was trying to get a bit more edge into the band. Uh, so that's that's why it worked really well with me because, you know, I brought in more of that kind of rock, stonesy kind of rock and roll element. But, you know, he's a phenomenal player. And we gelled 
really well together. And that's one of the things I kind of miss even to this day. I, you know, I really loved playing with him. And then um, a lot of people, some people don't realize that, um, of course, Mark wrote Private Dancer for Tina Turner, which you, of course, played yeah, on. So yeah. how did that end up being a Tina song? Yeah, I love that song too. Uh, Lover of Gold. We came in for rehearsals, same place, Woodworth, down by the river there. And Mark had, oh, he must have had like 20 songs, all cracking good songs. And the, the original idea was to have the uh, Lover of Gold as a double album. And Private Dancer was one of those songs. And I loved it. It was very different to Dire Straits, but I, I loved it. I loved the whole thing. I loved the feel. And I, and I kind of put more of a kind of... Um, <laughs> What's the word? You, you know, I, I put more of a kind of dance feel on it. Mm-hmm. I was kind of doing a, a, like a bit of, a, of my version of a Nile Rogers kind of rhythm on it and stuff. Love the whole lyric thing about you know being a private dancer and from the, from the woman's perspective and stuff. But Mark didn't feel as a man. I don't think he felt comfortable singing that. Generally, Mark, yeah, he, a lot of his songs he takes on a character and he gets away with it. But I think it was it was like a little bit too much trying to take on the character of a woman being a mm. dancer. And so sadly, and I campaigned heavily with Mark. I kept going, come on, we got to do this. <laughs> um, and sadly, it, it didn't, it didn't get there. It did get recorded, but it got shelved. And then uh, Tina was over, Tina's manager was over recruiting songwriters for Tina's album. And he met with Ed Bicknell. And he asked if Mark had anything. And it goes, actually, Mark does. That so would be perfect for her. And that's how it ended up being on with Tina. And then what happened was she she loved she loved our version of it, but it, they couldn't use it because it was recorded under the, our deal with the record company. So the record company owned it. Mm-hmm. So she wanted us to recreate it exactly as we recorded it. Okay. And the problem with that was Mark was not available. So that's why we ended up the rest of the band without Mark. Right. And okay. then they got, then they wanted, uh, you know, being America, they wanted a star guitarist. So they got Jeff Beck in to do the solo. Okay. I can't, yeah. Now I've heard obviously her version. I can't imagine um, a man singing that, but I think Tina's got that touch, hasn't she? When she puts her touch on a song, you can't really imagine it any other way. You know, Mark's version was pretty amazing i would and be interested probably, in hearing that yeah i know I, he would never release it but i wish he would i mean even it, uh, i think now in this day and age i think he would absolutely get away with it too um and um maybe i'll campaign it again next time I see maybe. Has, <laughs> is that version out there is mark's one out there somewhere no Absolutely not. Okay. All we have is the one with that. I, I think he, you know, he threw a guide vocal on for Tina, but that that version is not available. Mm, okay, I didn't know if it was just out there somewhere as a demo floating around on the internet mm-hmm. these days. But um, yeah, we we'll, we'll remain a mystery, I suppose. So, um, now did your life change after you left the band? Uh, well, I mean, vastly in terms of you're not on a plane, bus, coach, uh, traveling around the world. But in terms, I almost became like a session musician in my own, for myself. It, it, was, it, it was all studio work after that because I, I really wanted to 
get into the whole film world. And what happened was Mark was doing Local Hero. That was his first movie that he did. And he had the band come down and play on some of the tracks. So, you know, I was hanging around the sessions. And it's something I've, I've always been really intrigued by film music and the power that it has. I discovered very early on, like probably most people, that if something's super scary that you're watching on TV, if you just turn the volume off, it's actually not that scary at all. Um, so, you know, I was aware of music and then I was very influenced by all the any Americani scores and all the spaghetti Westerns. Mm -hmm. And it was just something like, I just do. And when I saw when Mark was doing it, uh, I thought, wow, I mean, because I wasn't classically trained, obviously, and I didn't go to conservatory and all that. So I thought, wow, this is actually something that I could, I could do. So I wanted to pursue that. And um, so I guess all I, it was all from then on, it was mostly me alone in a recording studio, which is kind of pretty much where I'm still at today. <laughs> yeah. You know, once in a while you get some people in or you have a session with people, but you know, mostly it's like you're, you're a studio rat. <laughs> and I do, I do miss the live playing because I loved live playing and I've done a lot of it in my life, but you pretty dire straits. I did a lot. Um, and I really miss that aspect. And that's a whole toolbox that that uh, is not being utilized. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I, I fantasize, saying, oh, maybe I'll go back to it, but I don't you know, probably, probably not. Well, it sounds like another interesting chapter, though, just a different direction, another musical um, muscle to flex. It's a very different thing. And it's a real good way to home in your art because until you actually get in front of a bunch of people or a person and play the music, you don't really know if it's any good or if it's connecting with people. Mm. I mean, you can sit in the studio and play it and then you can all day long and then you have people come in and go, Oh, that's fabulous. But until you're on a stage somewhere and you're either engaging a person or you're not, you don't know that unless you're out on stage doing it. Mm. So, and I'm sure that that will make you a better writer. For sure, cool. that kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it come that you ended up scoring all these numerous BBC series? Well, it was quite interesting. First, I first I got into. I was asked um, to write ads, music for advertising, which was quite a great discipline. Uh, so I had like a year or two of, of doing that. I did quite a lot of commercials in the UK. This is all based in the UK, and. I was also asked uh, to do a screen test for a movie called Not Quite Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, directed by Lewis Gilbert. And I haven't had much acting experience, but, you know, if someone asks you, you go, sure, kind of thing. So I went through a number of tests and got pretty high up the ladder there. And then in, in the end, you know, they went, they went with someone else. But that intrigued, the acting thing really intrigued me. So then I started studying acting as well. And I got booked on a BBC film called Drowning in the Shallow End with quite an amazing cast for the time. It was Paul McGann, Phoebe Nichols, um, kind of Tony Slattery. And while we were filming that, 
uh, I, started, I, was, I, I was hanging out with the director a lot. I really liked him, Colin Gregg. And we were talking, and I said, I said, you know, this film, this film would be awesome with an acoustic guitar score, mm. you know, kind of a bit like then used on The Graduate. And so he hired me to do the score on it. And I did an acoustic guitar score, and it went down really, really well because it suited the piece. And then shortly after that, there was a music supervisor called Ray Williams, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was he was quite integral to the music scene mm-hmm. back in the day. And you know, he put Bernie Taupin together with Elton John, for instance. Oh wow! So he had quite a pedigree and an amazing guy. And I was introduced to him and he found a feature film for me called Joy Riders, directed by Ashling Walls, who's doing a lot of great work still today. And she had already, she was young. It was like, I think it was her early film, she Irish. I think it, it, it was probably her first film. And she had a traditional, I think she was kind of, led to having a traditional score on there, which didn't work for the piece. And she asked me if I could rescore it. So I did. And then those two things really got the ball rolling. So pe- people started coming to me and, and uh, asking me if I'd like to score their things. I said, yeah, would I? Yeah, of course. And your stuff um, was um, more guitar-based then, I'm guessing the scores that you did for the most part. Well, initially it was guitar based and that's what I wanted to do because I, you know, mostly in those days anyway, like if someone did a guitar score, they'd do like a twangy blues thing or something. They didn't use the guitar in a way that really married with the images. And, you know, guitar is one of those instruments. There's a couple of instruments that really connect to the soul. It's like cello does that for me. And, a violin can too. I mean, they, they can really ex- connect with an emotion that's happening. Mm. And guitar is one of those that can really make you feel something deeply without manipulate, manipulating you mm. into it. So I think it's a very powerful instrument. But so I started off with, with the guitar scores, but then eventually, and you know, in the, in, in that industry, you tend to get your, your, team that you work with so you know if you work with a director and he likes what you do it's more than likely that he'll come back to you next time and say oh i've got this movie and at some point they go i've got this piece but guitar's not going to work can you do something else mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah sure because you're not going to say no if you're about to leave the gig and they go yeah of course i can <laughs> um and that kind of got me into getting back into piano and then coloring around the piano with you know, strings and, and woodwind and brass and whatever. So those piano so, lessons came in handy after all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I'm guessing you've got quite a decent guitar collection. Is that fair to say, Hal? Maybe. <laughs> what have you got? Come on, tell me. <laughs> uh, I have a problem. I need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you surrounded by them? Can you not open doors? Are they filling up rooms? I think the gag is uh, I only need one. No, what was it? I can't remember. It's sort of like <laughs> I only need one guitar. Oh, yeah. I only need one guitar more. 
or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know they, they, they do. They do. I don't know what it is. I, I think it's deeper than just a guitar. I think it, you know, it takes you back to your youth too. What are your favorites you know, then? There's a red Gretsch that I got when I was in Dire Straits and, and uh, I used to use it on stage. It's called a Gretsch Jet Duo Jet. And actually Mark played, played it on the recording of, of uh, Two Young Lovers and uh, Twisting by the Pool. That guitar to this day is my number one. It, it's phenomenal. It doesn't quite sound like a Gretsch. It doesn't quite sound like anything. It has its own unique kind of tone, very musical. So it's that. And then I'm a huge Telecaster guy. I don't know what it is about the Telecaster. It just, I think it's it's so basic. It just has like a couple of knobs and a couple of pickups. And if you can't do it on a Telecaster, you're probably not going to be able to do it on anything else either. Okay. All right. All right. Um, you've got a few favorites then for sure. I'm guessing. Um... But, but, you know, the other thing too is I love all the wacky stuff. Like I love baritone guitars. I love high strung guitars, which are basically the top six strings of a 12 string mm-hmm. without the bottom six. So that pitches you an octave above where you would normally be. Okay. And then I love all those, like I mentioned before, the charangos and the, and the um, ukuleles and and the mandolin, huge. I use the mandolin a lot. Okay, beautiful sounding instrument. Yeah, so so there's all that. And then I like the wacky, you know, the old cheap ones. I like the Dan Electros and uh, the, the Ks and the harmonies. And I like the, I like the cheap. I like guitars to have, you know, they have to have some kind of character. It's quite interesting because sometimes you'll pick up like a perfect guitar. Very expensive, built perfectly, sounds perfectly in tune and it's like i'm never going to use this i don't know what to do with this and then you'll pick up something else that's like cheap and out of tune and, and but sounds like trash and you're like yeah that this is happening <laughs> that's a bit of me. Do something like <laughs> love it and what about um i know you're a big celestian fan and um of course that goes hand in hand with guitars and all of your tone and everything so when did you first use them and which guitar amps or combos do they feature in for you you know i first in my teenage years i, I used to play nightclub i used to play in a nightclub band we used to do six nights a week that's when when i was saying i did a lot of live hours mm-hmm. and um i got a uh, i got a <laughs> i got a marshall which i can't even imagine how i used that in a nightclub it must have been so loud <laughs> i had a marshall you gave them the full-on experience <laughs> yeah amazed i can even hear you <laughs> <laughs> yes. but um i love the speakers and, you know, I remember like, well, I know there was four of them, but, you know, in those days you'd be wearing flares and the was to try to make those flares rattle from the wind pressure of the speakers full on. But uh, I love the sound of those because they sounded phenomenal when, when, you, when you pushed them super hard. But also if you back the, the volume back, uh, you, you got this crystal clear, really musical, warm sound out of them. So, you know, I took the back off and I saw these green things. And I had no idea what they were, green celestians. And I also had, an, uh, later I got an HT30, which I used a lot too. When I stopped using the Marshall, that was my go-to. Mm. And I had no idea because there were blue Vox Bulldog speakers. So I had no idea that they were celestians. But years later, I found out those were actually celestians as well. So those were my two favorite speakers, the, the Greenbacks and the Bulldogs. And then I found that if you put either of those two into any other amp, I love Fender amps, 
if you put one of those in a Fender amp, it just it was a game changer. And one of my my favorite amps, I have a, a Super Champ, which is came out in the eighties. It was designed by a guy called Paul Rivera for Fender. And I have a ten inch Greenback in there, and it's phenomenal. It's like one of the best amps I've ever heard, and I use it like ninety percent of the time. I have a closet full of amps, but that's the one that gets used. And also I have a, 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 what do you call them, Deluxe Reverb, and I have a um, Greenback in that, which sounds so good. So what that one I like. Is that your go-to to this day then, a Greenback still? Yeah, I would have to say, yeah. Which one, which one do you go for? The G12H. Oh, the G12H. And what's that? What about its tone does it for you? You know what it is? It's I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any color. I just want to hear the sound that's in my head. And for some reason, that does it. It's not like, yeah, it's scooped on the, in the mids and it gives you a good bottom end. And you know, some of that, I don't know. I plug my guitar in and I go, yeah, that sounds great. And that's it. You know, I, I don't analyze it. You, you put other speakers in, you think, yeah, it's, that's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. There's just something about the Celestion that just works for me. I don't question it. Mm, well, no, why would you after all this time? And I know a lot of people, you know, they, they tend to think of selections as something you would drive really hard because they want that kind of raunchy, overdriven sound. But, you know, I play pretty clean. I play play a lot with my fingers. And it gives you, it's it's a great clean tone. It's And clean tones can be tricky because you don't want it to sound thin or piercing. You want something that's full-bodied, rich, has a lot of character, has a lot of warmth. And that's the Celestion. There's nothing out there that even comes close. I seem to have a problem with old Fender amps as well. <laughs> I seem to have a lot of them. You're painting quite the picture. Good. I'm picturing you surrounded by all these amps and guitars. Well, I try to, I try to hide, like, like an alcoholic who sort of hides his drinks, his <laughs> bottle of alcohol. I try to hide them. I mean, my, poor, my wife has no idea. But once in a while, she'll go like, Baby, did you know there's three guitar cases under the bed? I'm like, oh, oh, really? Uh, how did they get there? Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah, I I have old Fender amps like like the uh, tweeds and the brown face. I have, and I have I have some black face, but I, I'm particularly interested in the brown face and the tweeds. And what I do is I have them just brought up to spec to the original spec. I don't have them altered in any way. I just have the guy that works on them for me make sure that they sound the way they were supposed to sound when they left the factory back in the 50s. But, you know, the Tweed, I have a Tweed Deluxe, and that sounds great as well with, with, a, with a Greenback. I actually had, wait, I actually had a, not the Greenback in there, I had the Bell, Blue Bell. Is that right? Celestian Blue Bell. Mm-hmm. That looks like the Vox speaker. I had that in there for ages. And that, that is a killer sound. Okay. Well, whatever works for you. And what, um, what have you got in terms of coming up the rest of this year, Hal? I know you've been really busy with all these multiple projects and everything. Have you got anything in the works coming up or anything you're looking forward to? Well, I'm heading back to the UK for a couple of months and there's various people that I, that are right with. Um, and I'm, and then I have a, I want to finish off this album project that I'm doing with Steve. So that that's going to be on my main list when I get back in July. I want to get that done. 
and then a, a movie I was I was slated to be doing called Arthur's Whiskey has sadly been delayed because of COVID, but I'm hoping that's going to pick up towards the end of the year. And then Kay Meller is due to do another syndicate. I don't know if you're a fan of syndicate, but we got as far as series four and there's supposed to be a series five coming out. So hopefully that'll happen before too long okay. this year. Well, that's exciting. Lots to keep busy with. Yeah. 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 I'm happy as long as I can tinker. It's <laughs> as as a long, yeah. Well, stay away from the guitar shops when you're over here. I know you're going to pass a few. You know, it's it's interesting, too, because the guitar market, I don't know if you follow the vintage guitar market, but a couple of pre-COVID, it was looking like those days were over. Prices were coming down. People are, are, are like artists that have big collections are starting to just bulk dump their collections. Hmm. And no one's coming up to make you want to play guitar anymore. Like, you know, back in the day, there were your Jimmy Pages, Jimi Hendrix, you know, you'd, you'd hear them go, yeah, I want to play guitar. There's no one really now that that's happening with. That's so true. it seemed like it was, but all of a sudden post COVID, I don't know what happened, but vintage gear prices have skyrocketed. They're eye-wateringly high. I don't know what is going on. Like a Fender Jaguar, which is a guitar that you used to be able to buy in the pawn shops for nothing. Nobody wanted them. They're like 10, 15,000 pounds now. It's like insane. So I don't think I will be looking at the guitar shop. <laughs> okay, I don't blame you then if you're, if you're saying they're that kind of money. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. Plus, but, I think your wife probably thinks you've got enough. Uh, she might notice if you sneak another one back when you get off the plane. I know, they don't understand. I never, I never say anything about her shoes. I never <laughs> but they take up such little space in comparison. Huh? Oh, I'm fair. <laughs> Look, she hasn't paid me to say that. It's just a true fact. That's funny. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thanks for joining today, Howard. It's been such a pleasure, honestly, to talk to you and find out all about your career and then your whole music composition side of it and all of your, um, you know, various guitars and uh, your Celestian speakers and all of that side of things. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, I really cool. appreciate it. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.